Let's pray. God, uh, this can be a topic that can trigger a lot of angst and pain for people. Uh, this is something that for some folks, this is uh, about um, like chaos in their family. This, this, this election has just wreaked havoc on their personal life. I know there are literally there are like articles coming out about how like the mental health of our country is like going down in part because of what we have heard. We've got such a fascinating and arguably entirely unique thing happening this election and is wearing on us. And as followers of Jesus, we want our allegiance to be to you first and foremost. We want to have a proper understanding, Lord, of who we are in light of who you are, in light of your kingdom and your church and what you are up to. So in your name we pray, amen. Ever heard the phrase, citizen in heaven? Your citizenship is in heaven. I've ever heard this phrase before. It's a fairly popular phrase. Depending on when you grew up, the phrase may have a bit of different meaning, but oftentimes, being a citizen in heaven uh, is something that kind of feels uh, a bit detached. It feels like uh, if I don't, um, things that I believe now will somehow have an impact one day on this, I'll go to heaven when I die. Um, that uh, God has like claimed me as his own, that you know, uh, I'm just passing through this world and I'm just waiting for heaven, right? Like a lot of country songs, old spirituals speak to. Like, right, I, I, I believed in my mind some cognitive thoughts. Uh, maybe I felt like the appropriate weight of guilt, depending on what Christian tradition you came up in. And, uh, and then you own like, oh, thank you, God, you've saved me. I took communion once, it was great, confirmation, great. Now I'm not a citizen of heaven. And citizenship ends up meaning nothing in the real world. And we're left with participating in the normal patterns of citizenship. And this is not what this phrase looked like or meant. The world is ruled at the time that this is written in Philippians uh, by Rome. Uh, they ruled from India to England. Massive empire, arguably an empire of the world has never seen anything quite like the Roman Empire and they would have colonies. They were colonies of Rome. Colonies of Rome was a place that was far, like a great distance from actually the Roman capital, where a city would be set up to embody like the socioeconomic realities, the DNA, the value system of Rome. So in a, in a world without technology, how do you extend your reach as an empire? Well, you take D.C., and you go, all right, we want to we extend the values of Washington, D.C., so we're going to go up to this area up on the Providence River, and we're going to start a new D.C., and we're meant to export the values of D.C. This is what the colony of heaven, our colony of Rome, looked like. Paul directly lifts language from Rome and appropriates it to the church. He says, actually, what we're doing, kind of like what the, the Romans are doing, but we're actually a colony of heaven. Some writers have said an outpost of heaven. And so then when we talk about heaven, we're talking about everything in its right place. We're talking about things how they're supposed to be. We get all this imagery in scripture of the lying laying down with the lamb. There is no violence in heaven, right? So we're to embody heaven. We're to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have to ask questions about how we engage others. There's justice, there is equity, there is beauty, there is wonder, there is all of these things that we could wax poetic and do a whole teaching series on the reality of heaven. What we know 
is that Paul is saying to this first church in Philippi, who are under the thumb of the Roman Empire, saying, you are to be a colony of heaven. For Jesus and Paul, citizenship in heaven was about the real world. Peter says, you are to be a holy nation set apart. He uses the word aliens and strangers in this land. All of this is not about embodying a set of political suggestions for the world. This is about invoking and embodying the alternative. People who have no king but God. And this is how they were always supposed to be. Jesus drives this home in his famous statement, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is speaking of essence, not location. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying it's not here because he just gets finished saying it's here. He's saying it's about essence and not location. For those of you unfamiliar with kingdom language, we don't use this very often, but this is the simplest way I can think to describe it. It's the dome in which God is king. So it's the reason why even some of the gospel writers interchange kingdom of God with kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. The place where God is king. The place where everything's in its right place. The place where things are, are, are flowing from the good and healthy lordship of who Jesus is. It's Jesus for president. But imagine like where the president actually has some power to be able to enact some real change. And imagine the president isn't co-opted by sin. And imagine the president could dictate pure and loving and perfect and equitable things for people ready to receive it, right? This idealized image of when we think of heaven, of the kingdom, Jesus saying, my kingdom, my way of doing things, the thing that is breaking through in this world right now is not of this world. Jesus said this phrase, my kingdom is not of this world. He said this while on trial for insurrection. His kingdom had finally collided with the kingdoms of Herod and Pilate and they wanted answers. He collided with the Roman Empire. Since Jesus' birth, he had been at odds with the establishment and they wanted him dead ever since the rumors about the other king of the Jews. Jesus is put to death because of some questions about who is in charge and how things are gonna actually go. Here's the text. This is when he is questioned about this. Asked, by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? So he's come, this is the end of his ministry. He's there before the Roman officials. The Jewish people, the religious elite, have turned Jesus over to the Roman officials. And so they're asking questions. Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it that you're done? So Pilate's stuck in this spot where he needs to listen to the crowd who have brought Jesus, who's saying these outlandish things like my kingdom is here, he's forgiving sins. He's like not, he's like hanging out with all the people you're not supposed to hang out with, right? Jesus is rattling the establishment not because he's an authoritarian being mean, it's because he's hanging out with the most vulnerable and weak and because he's challenging the religious folks who want to create walls and build walls between people. So, Jesus coming before Pilate. Pilate's like, all right, I am in a sticky situation here because your people have brought you to me. 
Am I a Jew, Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests have handed you over. What is it that you've done? Jesus then says his famous phrase, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from a different place. You're a king then, said Pilate. You're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate retorted. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Pilate goes, I like this guy. (laughs) Maybe not quite that much. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Remember, Pilate's doing the bidding of Caesar. And here are the religious elite of the Jewish people who are actually under the boot of the empire but they've softened up and cozied up to the empire. And Caesar's now stuck in a position where the Jewish people are saying, it appears that you don't have allegiance to Caesar because this guy's going around saying he's king of the Jews. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. That's what's being shouted. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. For those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, you know how wild that statement is. The Jewish people who are in exile from their land have now buddied up to the Roman Empire because they've been given some rights. It's okay that you worship. Let's keep it under control. It's fine. We'll take care of the social services thing. You guys just, you'll be all right. Roman, the bread and circus of Rome is keeping the peace. And all of a sudden, you have the religious leaders saying, we have no king but Caesar. Here's why this is wild. The text that Stacia read to us, if you turn with me to 1 Samuel 8, I'm gonna give you some summary statements here. This is an extremely foundational passage for understanding God's view of government. The Lord has been sole king over Israel up to this point in history. He had established some judges to settle disputes, but there had never been an established government structure or positional leader over Israel. It was never God's plan to have humans ruling one another. He had always wanted to be their direct king. Governments arose, it seems, as a result of sin and brokenness in the world. In Israel, God's trying to inch humanity back to his ideal of having a tribe that once again recognized him alone as Lord, was thus free from human lords. So this is the age in which Samuel lived. The faith of the Israelites had wavered. They wanted a king, and it says in 1 Samuel, to be like other nations, to rule over them and to go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, the people felt that having a king would make living easier and make them more secure against their enemies. There are implications for this. God responded to this request for a king by decrying. Quote, they have rejected me from being king over them, like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. We see that people want human rulers because they no longer trust God to rule. 
It suggests that the very existence of government is evidence, evidence of human rebellion. And for Samuel, governments are a concession on God's part to humans who cannot trust God to rule them. A concession. John Calvin talks a lot about how the, the God who concedes, the God who can, meets and condescends often to meet humanity where it's at, to meet humanity where it's at. And at this point, you see God going, this is not my ideal, this was never my ideal. You even see the same language later on in Romans 13, which is a passage some followers of Jesus used to say, this is why you gotta be involved in government. And you just see concession language. God has ordered them like a librarian. You get no blessing of government. You get simply, they've been established. Many, 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 most writers point to this as a reality of, of, in light of our human fallenness, these things are in place to mitigate disaster. I say all this, and that is fascinating when you look again at the arc of scripture. When Jesus comes into the world, in Hebrews it says he came at the appointed time, he came at the culmination of the ages. Many have waxed poetic that this is, Jesus came at a time when people could wrap their head around what God was ultimately like. And then you get this giving of the Holy Spirit, God's voice and word imprinted on people's hearts, the quietness on people's hearts. And the power of that is that God wants to lead his people. That he is the firstborn of the new creation, that, that Jesus is doing something new, his kingdom is here and sent his spirit to guide us. There are actually implications for how we think about being in a church after the giving of the Holy Spirit and how we operate in the world. But I get ahead of myself. So back to Jesus before Pilate. He says his kingdom is not of this world because it refuses power. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, I'd have my people. If what I was trying to do was set up a government, I'd have my people come and rescue me from you. And he literally says in that passage, I have no department of defense. There's a different allegiance being pledged here. In a world where truth had become smothered and rulers don't even know what it is, even know what it is anymore. Jesus embodies a truth that will set even Pilate free. This we see from this account in the Gospels. All this is not about embodying a set of political suggestions for the world. It's about invoking and embodying an alternative, a people who have no king but God. A people who have no king but God. This is an important gr groundwork to lay because uh, for me and my story, uh, I just wanted to be, a, some of you know my backstory, I just wanted to be a rock star. That's all I wanted to be. Um, I love playing music. I love making art. I just wanted to play music and make art. Um, I went to college. I decided, made massive life choices like going to college. I went to one college. I was in tears on the stairs uh, at the last possible minute before I had to decide if I was going to go to like the school that I really probably should have gone to or stay here at URI because that's where my band was. I think my mom was weeping silently in the room trying to be really supportive, but like, oh my gosh, she's going to throw away a scholarship for a band. Like, what happened to my son? It's all I wanted, play music. And then from music, I realized the power of music, right? I grew up in a house... Um, uh, a, a pastor's house, a house where we talked about theology and ideas and God and justice. It was beautiful. So I always had an edge if I want to make the world right. If you've ever met my mother, who's actually here today, it's funny. She's like, you know, like, like I get this justice. We need to make things right, me and Ma, wherever you are. We're going to make things right, Ma. 
So in my, in my music, that started to come out more and more and more. I was passionate, passionate about, uh, it's why I have an affection for Bono. It was like, I can sing songs and fight like to help people who have AIDS in foreign countries. Like, this is great. Uh, in my last year of school, I started to get more and more wrapped into uh, how politics and community organizing can change things. I then went to work on a political campaign, somebody who was running for Congress uh, in a congressional district out in Western Massachusetts. I didn't agree with everything this man stood for, but I loved this man. This man was a good man. High ideals, follower of Jesus, really strong, sharp intellect, winsome. And so we went. And I went as an intern, long story, some things happened inside the campaign. I was able to work myself into a, uh, a job as being a media consultant, like an earned media consultant, because I had this design, whatever background. So here I am on the side, I'm still playing music, trying to make records. I take like uh, this basically five-month window to finish up school via this independent study and go work on a political campaign. What was fascinating about this is I started to re- realize how even this good man wanting to fight the good fight, these strong, even very traditional Christian values. I watched him have to compromise over and over and over. Over. It was exhausting and frustrating for him more than anybody else, but for all of us watching. Because the system, the game that he was stepping into was and is and has always been flawed. And to watch this happen, to watch a sort of pulling of allegiances was very, very difficult to the point where I started to have like moments of reflection of going, this can't be the only way the world changes. This can't be the primary way we go about doing justice and seeing people flourish. And I realized I had places in my own heart not having a real passion yet for the church that my allegiance was split. So I wonder how I would have responded at that time to this picture. This is Kaepernick. Next slide. I wonder how I would have responded to this. I don't know how many of you are aware of what this picture is showing. But San Francisco 49, it's football. <laughs> football. Not European football, American football. And he, uh, for a number of reasons, but... Uh, protested standing and putting his hand over his heart for um, the national anthem. And this created such a stir. In large part, it was looking at, kind of critiquing all of the, uh, the ache that was happening um, around the Black Lives Matter movement. Looking at some of the pain uh, that was happening with other uh, racial minorities, and in part saying, yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of what's happening in this country, and this is a, a small, silent way for me to enact protest. I wonder how I would have responded to this at the time that I was on the political campaign. Because I've learned now that the early church would have been utterly baffled by the idea that future Christians would shame someone for not swearing allegiance to empire. However you think about that particular situation, the idea that any Christian would go, how could he not but the veterans? We can talk more about that comment in the Q&R if you want. 
Think about your own context. Did you, when you were a kid, did you hold the, did you hold the pledge of allegiance as sacred? Not even as a kid, even now. You hold the pledge of allegiance as sacred, but you're sort of odd and weird about confessing the Apostles' Creed, like our creed of who we are and what we believe. Do you think making the sign of the cross is superstitious, but you always place your hand over your heart for the pledge of the anthem? This is weird, but we're, gonna, we're okay with this. You couldn't care less about the church fathers. You're about the word and the word alone, but you venerate the founding fathers. You don't like statues of saints, but we're going on a trip to Mount Rushmore. Did you know, this is the one that shook me, did you know the Pledge of Allegiance before you knew the Lord's Prayer? This is where I give my caveat. I think there are all sorts of beautiful and incredible things that have come out of this nation. I think it's a fascinating experiment. I think there's all sorts of room to grow and the speed in which it has enacted justice comparatively is pretty great. I could say some nice things. This is not some anti-America, anti-patriot talk. What this is is about getting first things first. And the fact that any of those things, if you had a rub inside you like, oh, I don't like that, there very likely is some idolatry looming inside of you. Because this, I, if I could hashtag those statements, it would be American civil religion. Let us not pretend that many of us aren't clouded. Our Christianity is not clouded by American civil religion. Some folks may be a bit bummed out also to find out that God bless America, it does not appear in the Bible. So if American civil religion, no one's walked out yet. I love you guys. If American civil religion is not our aim and we're to embrace the kingdom and live as citizens of heaven, if we're to be an outpost of heaven before anything else, if we're to have a different allegiance before anything else, what cues do we take from scripture to help flesh this out? So there's a phrase that I love from an advertising uh, giant named Marshall McLuhan. Well, it's become an advertising giant because of this thing. The medium is the message. Anyone ever heard this phrase? The method by which you send a message has just as much impact or more than the content of the message itself. You catch that? The method by which you send a message, the way you do it, has just as much impact or more than the content of the thing itself. I love that my mom's actually here because I'll tell this story. Uh, When my uh, dad was going to ask my mom to marry her, it was a interesting moment as what I have the story has been told because my dad was like about to, um, about to go and do this and ramping up for it. And apparently like it was rainy, it was cloudy, it was like the worst vibe. They had had like a long day. It was like dad not reading any of the signs. And he's just like, I'm going for it. And my mom just turns to my dad like, you're not gonna ask me to marry you, are you right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mentioned that because imagine for a second you are a couple and you've been talking about getting married. You've been talking about it. You know it's coming. You've like dropped hints of the ring. You're like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And so you're, you're sitting there and you're like, man, I, I, wonder, I wonder how he's gonna do it. I wonder how he's, I wonder how he's gonna do it. I wonder how he's gonna do it. It's gonna be so, I can know it's coming, I know it's coming. And you're like having a daydream moment. You're like, oh, that it's gonna be sky riding. I bet he's gonna like 
write it out on parchment paper and like burn the edges in the oven and roll it up in a scroll. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're like, it's going to be like at halftime at the Browns game. Like, it's going to be amazing. And you're daydreaming and all of a sudden you hear bzz, bzz, bzz in your back pocket. And you're like, oh, oh, it's my, it's my baby. You look up at the text and it's like, will you marries me? fail. (laughs) Somebody somewhere was like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't do that. Good. I'm glad that was the word I got from today. (laughs) What message does that send, right? Regardless of the content, it conveys the idea of something quick and throwaway. But the point is made. The medium conveys the message. This is the beauty of our story as followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't send a text. Born in a manger becomes like us. This matters because our Savior, the Savior of the world, dies for the sins of humanity. This is while they were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's language about in some way we are sort of enemies of God, our brokenness and our false choices. And God goes, I don't care what you have done. I am coming after you and love you and shows grace to even those that wanted to put him to death, which dramatically changes then how we're to operate in the world. If that's how God moves in the world, loving grace, laying down your life for those, the God of the universe says, that's what I'm like, so where that's the kind of king I am, and so if you're to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a massive part of that kingdom, the place where my dome, where I'm king of, the place where heaven exists on earth, it looks like that. It's really, really hard to do that in government. Lay down your life, turn the other cheek, always every time. The lion lays down with the lamb. That's what it's supposed to look like. This is what Jesus is like. He's saying, look, I am God in fullness. Paul says that multiple places. Do you wanna know what God looks like? That's what he looks like. Do you wanna know what kind of king he is and how he leads? That's what it looks like. The culmination of the ages. This is who God is like. He lays down his life. You can already see, and we could go through a laundry list of implications of the medium is the message, a laundry list, and see it's rather difficult to do that outside of the power of the gospel. Washing feet, healing the broken, visiting the woman at the well, taking in the outsider, heals and stands with the most vulnerable, says, I've come to serve, I've come to serve forgiving his murderers as they murder him. He subverts the Roman Empire through embodying the kingdom. He is showing us what it looks like, not just with pronouncements, but with everyday actions. He notices people. He blesses people. He goes out of his way to find the most lost. And then he tells his followers, he tells us, be like this and you'll be blessed. That's what he says. Be like this and you'll be blessed. You'll be participating in the joy of heaven now. For we know that God's blessing will inevitably follow if we are with the poor, if we are with the merciful, the hungry, and the persecuted, and that we align ourselves as peacemakers. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. That is translated, blessed are the peacemakers. Translated again, God is with the peacekeepers, peacemakers. Got it? God is with those that do this, with the merciful, with the most, or God's with them in a way somehow mysteriously that he's actually not with others. There's a deeper connection and pleasant presence and blessing there. The scriptures are filled with folks coming together 
forming close-knit communities and meeting each other's needs. No kings, no major welfare systems, no presidents necessary. His is a theology and practice for the kingdom of God. It is not suggestions for empire. You don't get anything else. These aren't suggestions of how to engage politics. It's saying, are you embodying this? I've said that phrase a lot. Like, are you living this out in flesh and blood, embodying that reality? Is that manifest? I think we know this intuitively. If you look back through history at the times that presidents have addressed the nation, multiple times presidents have turned to the television screen or turned to the radio address and said things along the line of, look, there is, I mean, this is a a summary statement. (laughs) There is only so much we can do and the responsibility for making our nation great lies with you, the citizens. That has been said multiple times by Democrats and Republicans alike, the big government giants and the libertarian wacko, like whatever your side. Even, like, there, we know this to be true. It's not that we don't address and engage systems. It's not that we don't become aware of the power of policy and how that can affect people. And we'll get to voting in a quick minute. But that reality of are we embodying these realities and politics ourselves begins to change things. They're not suggestions for how we should vote and then walk away. Well, I'm a citizen in heaven. That will mean something later. I read some texts, apparently you guys should be doing this stuff, I'm gonna vote in this direction, I'll get in some heated arguments, that guy seems the best thing. Well, you're the worst in every category, but you say you're gonna at least help out with the, 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 this, this one thing, so I guess I'll just throw you a bone, it doesn't really matter. In fact, I'll get really loud about it and hurt my witness in the meantime. And then I'm gonna just walk away and I'm gonna go on living my life however I want to live as long as it's not inconvenienced. They're not suggestions for empire. They are commands for the church. Commands for us. This is why Paul writes in Timothy, join me in suffering like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Rather, they try to please their commanding officer. I humbly submit to you that getting too involved in politics is getting involved in civilian affairs. That allowing that to co-opt your own movement and engagement is about getting involved in civilian affairs. This was a soldier Paul has in mind, stationed in a foreign land. The soldier's assignment is to suffer if need be, to carry out the agendas of their homeland. And his assignment is not to become involved in civilian affairs, but be focused on pleasing his commanding officer. We are quite literally soldiers stationed in a foreign land. Soldiers who lay down their life for their enemy. Soldiers who wash the feet of the hurting. Soldiers who bless those who are persecuted. Soldiers who love their enemies, even if it means martyrdom. Because we are martyrs, not murderers. So, to do this, it's an imperative that we, become pre- we don't become preoccupied with civilian affairs. And we know what our commander-in-chief is asking. The greatest sin of political imagination is thinking there is no other way except the broken system that we have today. That is the greatest sin, that there's no other way. There's just no other, Andrew, you're being unreasonable. I can already hear the questions. 
For all the big and small questions about how this will work out, we must remember the church does not have two allegiances. It says in Luke 16, we cannot serve two masters. We are to obey government, and this is what's crucial. We're to obey government not because we have a duty to it, but because we have a duty to God. And he tells us, in part, to submit to government insofar as it's possible. Why? Why would God then say, submit to government insofar? On this side of God ultimately bringing heaven to earth, why should we submit to government insofar as possible? Because government is simply not worth bucking against if we don't have to, because it will distract us from doing our duty of manifesting the kingdom and spreading the gospel. You get that? You may disagree with that, but hear that. After all the centuries, Christians were jailed and even killed for refusing to make sacrifices to empire, refusing to kill for flags and idols, insisting that there is something worth dying for, but nothing worth killing for. There's some things worth dying for in this world. There's strength in that. I remember a Christian peacekeeping mission. You didn't know those happened, did you? It's about 300 or so folks that went over from the U.S. when the Iraq, first Iraq war first started. And they were just with people. They weren't against the country. They were there. The, all the thousands of folks caught in the middle. Many know the first bomb that dropped during that war killed so many children. And when being interviewed on the Today Show, the feed was cut. You can go look this up. The feed was cut of interviewing this this. Christian peacekeeper, and um, he's asked, you know, what's happening? Are you an expat? You know, they're asking questions about, like, you know, his allegiance to country. And he said, look, I will, one of, one of the phrases he said, I will die for the people of New York. I will not kill for them. And I will die for the people of Baghdad. I will not kill for them. And that kind of political imagination, I think, is important. That's not a descriptive thing of here's how we all must act in every situation. It's the acknowledgement that another world is actually possible. This world of heaven, the thing we apparently pray every time we take the Lord's prayer, what it means in part to be a disciple. So to close, we need to have a vision that one by one, God's vision, these disciples would infect the nations with grace. It wasn't a call to take the sword or the throne and force the world to bow. We are not called to force the world to bow. Rather, they were to live the contagious love of God and to woo the nations into a new future. So voting, let's get to it. We vote every day for companies, for people, and we put money toward campaigns all the time in all sorts of different ways. Many argue uh, corporations are far more powerful than political parties these days. We need to think of the faces behind the scenes. Who are the masters and Caesars that we pledge allegiance by the way we live and through the things we put our trust in? We vote every day with our feet. We vote every day with our hands, with our lips, and with our wallets. We are the vote for the poor. We are to vote for the peacemakers. We are to vote for the marginalized and the vulnerable. These are the ones that Jesus voted for, those whom every empire had left behind those whom no millionaire politician will represent. And we know this, by the way. We know this, even those who deeply care. I genuinely believe that both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in their heart of hearts want to care for the poor. I, I actually really believe that deep down. But it does not take much digging or reading 
to know where that power is limited, how that would go about and the massive differences between those two and the other candidates. And so we can look to voting and go, okay, I can do some damage control. That's one way many Christians have thought of voting. Some have identified the fact that, oh, there's a, a candidate who seems to embody some good kingdom values, has a good sense, will be able to navigate the tricky and complicated and poisoned water of trying to mandate morality on anybody. And that's good. I believe we actually need Christians in the political world. But I think it is a minefield unlike any other space. And I say that then for the rest of us, that the invitation, the invitation is to a fresh political imagination around the things we say we care about. Followers of Jesus have always traditionally been pro-life and they've been pro-life from womb to tomb. They've been pro-life all the way down the board. There's a lot of complications on what we think and how best to handle that and how best to minimize abortion. There's all sorts of different thoughts about that. But I wonder if folks that are so riled up have the same, um, same approach and same thought when it comes to issues of war and military, to violence, to end of life care, if we ask these same questions. And the big one, especially when we talk often, this is again an example of political imagination. When we talk about questions of a hurting mom who feels like she has no other option but to, to have an abortion. Overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't take away that situation. However you wanna make sense of that, I'm not gonna get into this. I'm not gonna externally process on you my individual thoughts on abortion. What I do wanna say is that just imagine, imagine for a minute, there are a group of people who get together regularly down at whatever location where there may be some abortions happening. And let's just say there's someone like handing out maybe letters. I don't know, I'm making this up. They just say, hey, we can't imagine what you're going through. We represent a church where there are like 30 to 40 people, 50, 100 people who are all registered um, in, uh, with DCYF to be foster parents or to adopt. And we know this must be so hard. And we would love for you to maybe reconsider that choice and know that we will pay for all of your medical expenses. We will figure this out and journey with you. And you have a place for your baby to go because we can't imagine the, the, how hard it is, the choice you have to make. Like that maybe, maybe there are um, ways that we can pray, God, would you give us a fresh political imagination for how we deal with some of the most desperate issues? The reason why we're trying to, to close in on RFK Elementary School and be this life support system is because, and forgive me if there are any officials in the Providence School Department here, we love you and we know you're doing your best. But good Lord, the Providence School Department is a mess. It is a, un, like, I, it's just a mess. And so we can fight to raise more money. We can pull taxes out of nowhere. We can try to demand that other people give up their money to support that and trust that something will change and maybe it will and we can have those discussions. My point is that for all the nuance, what we can do is embody a politic where we as a community say, we are here for your needs. We will make sure that no teachers don't have to dip into their individual salaries to buy school supplies for their for their the school. We can make sure that every kid has a backpack. We can make sure that the rooms are painted and clean. We can make sure that you're actually getting curriculum. We can buy computers and laptops and we can just like absolutely hijack the system. And then we can go to more schools and more schools and more schools and more schools. We could go down the line. 
you may think, oh, it's a silly idea or an individual idea, but the reality is, is when we begin to pray for a fresh political imagination, when we begin to realize we are people of the risen Jesus, man, it begins to change things. It disrupts the world, right? It's why followers of Jesus, right, when the, in the Amish community, when their uh, schoolhouse was, people were killed, their children were killed. Imagine your kids being just murdered. The person who killed those people was shot by police in the process and they died. And now imagine you going to the widow of the person who shot your children, your child, your baby girl, and you go and you care for the widow of the very person and the whole extended family of the person who killed your kid. Imagine doing that. It happened. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Simple acts, hard, deeply hard, nearly impossible, but simple. Acts of love and compassion that actually change things and inspire new movement. And so to say, what does it mean for me to embody the things that I want to say? Well, that guy will take care of it. Well, that woman will take care of it. Well, that party will take care of it. And we begin to say, God, what do you want to do in me, in us? And how can we see our call on this earth, not as like getting hitched, being married for a bit, having a decent retirement, having a few good years and fading out. You're building your legacy right now. It's happening. Your tombstone's being written right now. And I know that I want just in big, bold letters, like served Jesus, didn't get involved in civilian affairs, like followed my commanding officer, that I participated in the kingdom in ways beyond and ways beyond sort of the, I think, the lip service we pay. When we say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we say that, we are voluntarily or involuntarily inviting ourselves into the renewal of all things. In all of this, it is naive. I'm sorry. I believe it is foolish. And if you're sitting here thinking all this sounds a bit foolish, it is foolish. And Jesus says that it is foolish, but it is not naive. It is not naive. Let me remind you today, just for a sense of history, where Caesar's empire is. Where is Caesar's empire right now? In 2016, where is it? Where is it? Where is Caesar's empire right now? gone. It's gone. And you know what? Where America might be in a couple hundred thousand, who knows? It might be what? It might be. We're not praying for its destruction. We hope it flourishes, but it will never be a city on a hill. That's where our founding fathers got it heretically wrong. It couldn't be beautiful. It can be healthy. It can have some justice. It can be wonderful, but it can't ever be the kingdom. We are not the hope of the world. We are not the hope of the world. But if all we do is pay lip service to that and we don't begin to then step in to the beautiful, vibrant, exciting, free revolution of God's love of the cross and the resurrection, people whose identity is rooted in Christ, who have no fear in death because of the resurrection, willing to charge in and be the voice of Jesus following our commanding officer in ways that will both challenge and woo people to Christ, then we are missing it. Psalm 33 says this. 
I'm gonna sub some words out for us. No president is saved by the sides of his army. No warrior, no military escapes by his great strength. A political party is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Today, we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God, to a peace that is not like Rome. And so if you're comfortable, feel free to read this with me. We pledge allegiance to the gospel of enemy love, to the kingdom of the poor and the broken. We pledge allegiance to a king that loves his enemies. This isn't on the screen. Oh, you got it? It's not there? Oh, it's broken. Yeah, it's there. You got it? You want to start over? All right. <laughs> Today, we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God, to a peace that is not like Rome's. We pledge allegiance to the gospel of enemy love, to the kingdom of the poor and broken. We pledge allegiance to a king that loves his enemies so much he died for them. We pledge allegiance to the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations. We pledge allegiance to the refugee of Nazareth, to the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head. We pledge allegiance to the cross rather than the sword, to the banner of love above any flag. We pledge allegiance to the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist, to the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse. We pledge allegiance to the revolution that sets both oppressed and oppressors free. We pledge allegiance to the way that leads to life, to the slaughtered lamb. We pledge allegiance. And together we proclaim his praises from the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, would your just peace and hope descend on your people in this moment? No one's looking to start a fight for fun, to be confrontational for kicks. No one wants to be edgy for edgy's sake, or we simply want to be faithful. We just want to be faithful. I'm looking around at the people in this room, and I know so many of the people just want to be faithful. They want to love well. They want to engage the messiness of politics in a way that honors you. There are so many people in here who have such creativity, ingenuity, resources, heart, vulnerability, levels of empathy on certain issues, Lord, that are just outstanding. And we're asking on the backs of the last couple of weeks of talking about how we become better blessers of our city, that you would move powerfully among us. I know there are folks in our community talking about how do we like work to give out payday loans. There are folks who want to ask harder questions about how we deal with issues of reconciliation. There are folks in our community who want to go so much deeper into the realm of caring for education in the city. There are folks that have been convicted to fall on their knees daily in prayer. There are those who are raising children, 
to be agents of the kingdom and love in this world and are grappling with the resources of how to do that, Lord. We are so, um, I am so thankful. We are so thankful for the people that we get to sit next to week in and week out in this church. And I pray that in this election season, that in this new year, that whoever takes the place of president, that that would not alter our course or our cause to be people of heaven, to be Easter people in a Good Friday world, to be life givers in a place where there is so much death. Lord, may we first embody the politics within our community, caring for each other's needs and lifting one another up. And may we be the voices in each other's ears saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep going with the visions that God has given you. Keep going with being the community that you called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.